Steve Hayes, welcome to the show. I'm really happy to be here, Nick. Looking forward to it. So if I had to pick kind of a core idea from your work, psychological flexibility has got to be uh, near, if not at the top, right? I mean, it's a pretty, a pretty foundational one. So I want, I want to kind of start there, but, but maybe with a slight twist. How would you describe psychological flexibility and, and why it's important? But assume you're talking to a six-year-old. I've got a six-year-old daughter, fairly bright, inquisitive. Um, but let's break it down on that level. I would love to kind of hear your thoughts. So pretend I'm a six-year-old. How would you describe this kind of big concept of psychological flexibility? I'd say, well, life's going to ask you, give you challenges, things that you need to learn. And your mind's going to give you answers sometimes that aren't always going to be helpful. A lot of the things that you're learning in school is how to figure things out and solve problems. And, and that's really, really fun. But you're not a problem. You're not a math problem. And learning how to be you, how to have fun, how to connect to others and love and create and, you know, do things with your time, that, you know, is going to take, be a challenge for you. And it is for everybody. You, all these giants walking around that look like they know they were once your age. And even at their age, they don't know yet, they're still learning. And so, you know, what we call it psychological flexibility, a gigantic word, but really what it means is learning how to do a better job of feeling, to notice what you're thinking and take what's useful, but not just everything. Because some things are in your head because people told you or because criticized you or mean things or things that you know, like, oh, I don't like thinking about that. Well, what do you do with that? So learning how to step back and notice what you're thinking, notice what you're feeling and remembering, and then look around you and see where you are and what's inside you and kind of be able to make a decision based on where do you want to go and what do you want to be and what do you want to be like and you know how, how did you want to contribute to others how, how do you want to really what kind of person do you want to be and figure out a way to learn how to do that in a really awesome way and that those processes are what we call psychological flexibility. It's being able to learn from experiences that you've had, the things that you've had, and be able to get better and better at being you instead of uh, thinking of yourself like a math problem that uh, or it isn't working out or somebody who's broken or somebody who's inadequate or somebody who's not lovable or somebody who's great and grand and everybody should bow down before you. There's lots of ways to get that wrong. And you've probably seen people, friends of yours who are sometimes get that wrong well how are you going to get it right i love it it's such a um it's such a gentle answer you know there's a lot of even just the way you kind of frame that answer that um that diffuses it from being such a bit such a big concept and, but it's and it's interesting I, I often ask people to that frame on a lot of their kind of big ideas when i have people on this podcast but it, i think it's especially applicable in this case because it, it, it would almost be a redundant question to a kid right you almost think that in some ways kids kind of know how to be how to be flexible, how to be psychologically flexible in a lot of ways. And the, the problem almost becomes as we get older and we get more rigid, right? So talk a little bit about that. How, how is it that we go from, I mean, you have this term psychological flexibility, but it, it's sort of uh, nemesis or antithesis, antithesis is psychological rigidity. So what, what, talk about rigidity a little bit and what, what that looks like as we get older um, and start to become more, more yeah. rigid. Well, the set you just put on that, you know, aren't we sort of inherently more flexible? And of course, sometimes you know, people have very young abuse histories and things like that where, where no, that, but it, it, for, if you had a reasonable loving and supporting kind of very young childhood, yeah, you, you are, that's why we look at them. They're so sweet. They're so innocent. They're so perfect. They're so, they're so them. I mean, they're, they're just, there's no, no fake, no pretense, no, I mean, there's no uh, embarrassment. There's no prejudice. There's, it's just, they're 
innocent and beautiful and perfect, yeah? And, uh, you know, we that quality almost brings tears to our eyes because we know that we were once like that. And we grew up to you know, be like that. And, and so, uh, yeah, I remember, if I can just sort of tell the story and then I'll try to answer your question in a different way, but I remember um, my eldest son, the first time I caught him in a lie, and I think he was in first grade and he had a toy that I didn't recognize. And I asked him where he got it. And he says he, he was given it by the teacher. And I kind of let it sit and you're given it by the teacher? And, I'm, and we're walking into it and sure enough, it was stolen from the school. And uh, a couple of questions revealed that and he burst into tears and, and he said, but I wanted it. And it wasn't that he wanted it in this instrumental thing of taking that made brought tears to my eyes, seeing the tears in his. It was that he would now know to lie to me, to be a different person than the little boy I've been watching growing up for fear that, you know, I wouldn't love him or want him or, you know, he knew enough to sort of put on a mask, put on a, be a fake person. And, you know, the Greek word for that, masks that the, the actors wore was persona. He's developing a persona, a personality. He's learning how to wear a clown suit, how to be the little kid who teachers just want to give toys to, not the little kid who steals things because I wanted it. And um, we all walk down that path. I mean, if there's somebody listening right, right now who's thinking, you know, well, I don't lie. You're a freaking liar. Of course you did. And you did it early, early on. And you still feel guilty about it, I hope. You know, some into full psychopathy, maybe longer does. But, you know, and a good thing, you know, because it turns out guilt over lies actually helped one learning not to lie. And uh, all those parental warnings, you know, the first you practice to deceive, you know, what a complex web you'll weave. That, um, so rigidity, I think, comes from two major sources. The biggest in, in initial source, I think, is as we, as we gain verbal rules, as we learn symbolic language, as we learn relational thinking, we, that reflects back on us and we create stories about who we are, and how we are, how we came to be, what our life is, et cetera. And we were massively supportive in being consistent and having the right answer and being smart and knowing, I mean, on the, in the preschool schoolyard, the single most common fight People are shocked by this, but if all you need to do is think about your latest staff meeting or something at work and, and you'll recognize it, is the single most common fight on the schoolyard is who's right. It's not who gets the bike, it's not it's who's right. And uh, it only gets worse from there, you know? So, you know, as we develop language, we, it reflects back on ourselves and we begin to adopt, uh, you know, a clown suit persona. And we also have in those rules, rules about how to try to solve the problem of being ourselves and our own history and the painful parts of that and so forth. So the second input is, is pain and the tendency to avoid it, then gets combined with rules and the rules about how to avoid it. And we're off to the races, you know, we're off to a process in which we kind of set up a process where we'll do better and better by knowing less and less, by being less and less honest, less and less aware, less and less mindful. You know, if you can remember and feel and sense, all that pain will follow you. You don't know how to make it go away, short of brain injury. 
but you can do it through suppression and distortion and lies to yourself and hiding things from yourself. And so rigidity is a process of being emotionally and cognitively closed, being unaware of what's happening to you in the present, being able to broaden your narrow or shift or stay in your attentional processes and have bought into a storied self so thoroughly that your brain starts filtering out sensory motor information. Literally, this is what happens. That doesn't fit the story you tell about who you are instead of this dimensionless bit of consciousness that connects you in consciousness to others, which is where you started when mama looked in your eyes and said, oh, you sweet baby, and you dumped endorphins because you're seen by kind eyes, you know, 48 hours after birth. I mean, this is where we start, ready to connect, ready to belong, ready to be part of the group yearning for that. And we end up thinking that the only way we get to belong is by being especially grand or especially awful, especially needy or especially useful. And if it takes lies to get there, we'll tell them. And then that final little piece of inflexibility of then not even knowing anymore. What do we care about? What do we really want? Uh, just between ourselves and the person in the mirror, we know what we're told to want and what we're supposed to want and what the books say we want, and what mama wants from us or whatever. But that basic yearning that you little kids have, you know, not that way, mama, not that way. I want to do it. Where you just have that sense of autonomy. And I want to, I want to be able to decide what's important. And you end up, you know, dancing to the tune of your own guilt and shame or the stories you've been told or what other people expect of you or otherwise I won't be loved or otherwise I won't be whatever. And being able finally to mobilize your behavior. So the simplest ways of talking about rigidity, I think would be to be closed and unaware and to put a values-based life on hold. And the simplest way to talk about flexibility would be open, aware and actively engaged in a values-based life. It's simple to say, damn hard to do, and we're all a work in progress. There's no grand queen or king of psychological flexibility, and I'm certainly not one. You can ask my wife. Uh, but, uh, but I do know it's important, and the data show it's important. I mean, several thousand studies in now, we know that it's arguably the single most important small set of processes known in behavioral science. I can even explain why I can say that without embarrassment. Uh, because I've actually done the count. I actually know <laughs> how much is known about what are processes that lead to success or failure in living. And uh, the single most supported small set is psychological flexibility processes. Mm. So it's worth learning. Let's, so to make this a little bit more concrete, what if we, can we go through some specific examples that, that I, I sort of struggles and like, maybe I'll ask you for each one, give me like a prototypical example of what rigidity looks like in a given context and then what the, the sort of more flexible a more flexible alternative would be. So if you take something like, um, I was just talking to someone about um, being uh, getting really nervous at, at, at parties, a kind of social anxiety. So what would be what would be an example of psychological rigidity in social anxiety? And then the, the, it's sort of more flexible counterpart. It's a really good question. And it's a really good uh, example. You can play all these things out. And I know it up close and personal because I start this journey really with my own panic disorder history, which is very, very close to, uh, to the social anxiety that I felt. I mean, those are the not the only situations, but a very dominant situation in which panic would show up and so forth. So on the emotional side, it's that nervousness is your enemy. Uncomfortableness around people is your enemy. And you need to suppress that, diminish it, make it go away before you can relate to people. When in fact, you're nervous in part because you yearn to be with people and you're not sure that you're skilled enough to be able to pull that off. So instead of being a goad to learning how to be with people, it's a goad as you are, you know, as you, who you really are, it's a go to either not be with people at all because they're going to see how nervous you are, they're going to sense it, they're going to reject it, they're going to say, what's the matter with you? you know, or 
you'll just fake it, fake it, fake it until you make it. But actually what will happen is you'll fake it so long you won't even know who you are. You don't even know what you feel because part of the way you're going to fake it is you're going to suppress, diminish, push down nervousness itself. When nervousness is just a little sign that this is important. People are important to me. I want to belong. That's not your enemy. Knowing that's not your enemy. But the mind's so stupid, it'll say, until you learn how to subtract, you can't add. You can't add relationships that matter, love that matters, intimacy, belonging, commitment, loyalty. You can't do that until you subtract nervousness, anxiety, social concerns, thought. So that's one, that's emotional. But it's not just that, it's cognitive. You're predicting what's going to happen. If I do this, I'll get that. You know, and if they reject me, you know, I'll never be loved again. I'll be publicly humiliated. I'll be shown to be a whatever the story. There'll be some if-then relationship. It'll then come back to yourself. So have a sense of self kind of thing, a storied self. I'm the inadequate one, the unlovable one, the, the nervous one, the idiot, the one who's embarrassed, you know, embarrasses himself, humiliates himself, where everybody laughs at behind their back. I don't know what the thing is. But in that social concern and anxiety, there's probably a story itself of somebody who's broken, unable, et cetera. And the very person who's noticing that, that dimensionless awareness that's noting this thing that is absolutely perfect and is not going to change no matter what. It has nothing to do with that story. It's just aware of the story. It's like a table with something put on it. And but that disappears. I mean, you don't see this more spiritual sense of yourself or this pure consciousness or awareness sense of self that you might find later on in life when you learn how to meditate or you might find it through psychedelics or you might find it in all kinds of different ways. You might find it in a loving relationship. You might find it through therapy, but there's more to you than that freaking story because it contains all kinds of lies. You know, like I'm never loved ever. I'm totally like this always everywhere. Whatever. No, it's, it's always a lie, but so we're back to my son, you know, so I've given you three of the six attentional inflexibility. You're nervous. You're socially anxious. What are you doing when you go into a party? We almost certainly focused within on how anxious you feel, projecting cognitively out about the humiliation that's going to happen, or into jumping into the eyes of others not to connect, but to find judgment. They probably think I'm an idiot. They probably wish I hadn't shown up. I don't know, something. And um, that kind of misuse of perspective taking is not being used against yourself. And then on the behavioral and value side, you're probably forgetting even what you want out of relationships and why social stuff even matters you're turned into some sort of big test and you're probably doing a fair amount of avoiding you're probably not saying yes to opportunities you're probably not going to parties you're probably leaving early you're probably standing in the corner you're probably not going to that girl and starting that conversation and you're probably not speaking honestly when people ask you about what's going on it on and on it goes so rigidity there would look like uh, emotional and cognitive closed offness attentional rigidity and missing this more spiritual sense of self and adopting a more self-judgmental categorical, you know, something's wrong with me sense of self. And then forgetting what you really care about and allowing your behavior to be guided by that instead having your behavior be guided by how you can self-manipulate, avoid. Yeah. So speaking of, you just brought up self-judgment. It's actually one of the things I wanted to ask you about because um, it's such a it's such a big part of if so much of psychological rigidity is this the storied self, you know, these sort of rules that we we develop for ourselves that then get manifest as specific bits of self-talk, right? Judgmental, self-critical bits of self-talk. Um, like where when you think about this, like you take someone who's got who struggles with a lot of self-judgment and negative self-talk, right? Self-criticism. Um, what? Where does that come from? You know, like what's the, if you think about it, what factors best explain the variance there? Because um, there's all sorts of, you know, 
parental modeling, personality structure, like what? So, so when you, and as someone who's kind of both researched this and worked kind of on the ground as a clinician, um, how do you, how do you think about that? What are, what are the big factors in terms of why do some people develop so much self-judgment and self-criticism and other people, I mean, we all have a little bit of it and other people just not that much. What, what sort of explains that in your experience? Uh, it's a whole set of things and, uh, and it, and it's, it is in crack. It's evolving within your life. I'm always cautious about these top-down categorical normative things, personality, things like that. It turns out those really predict their trajectories as individuals well at all. We even get to that discussion on it because I'm realizing how important that is and how much that's based in the dirty history of our own st statistical models and conceptual models that we've had uh, for the last 150 years. That's another conversation, but an interesting one. And let me just say it this, the diversity, equity, inclusion is really important because we were living out a racist agenda over the last 150 years, even in things like personality. Maybe we can get there, but back to this answer you asked me about. It's modeled. You see it modeled by your parents, but you see it modeled by your friends, by, by, on television, you see it everywhere. And so it's modeled. It's naturally built into language. As soon as you get problem solving, I mean, problem solving, let's just take an extreme version. I mean, the very beginning of the act book of the first one, I tell the story of a six-year-old throwing herself in front of a train because her mother had died and she kills herself to go be with her mother at six years old. Well, the point of that is the most horrible outcomes that you can imagine. They're the most anti-life things you can imagine that no other living creature does, at least not in that way, except human beings. You can find it in three-year-olds. You don't find it in one-year-olds. You don't find it in two-year-olds, but it is so primitive. All you got to be able to do is if, then, compare. You just have to have names, comparison, and features of, of named objects to be able to get to it. I would. It will be better to be in heaven with mama than to keep living. This is so primitive. Well, it would be better not to feel like this. It would be better not. I mean, you can attack, self-attack, self-judge with very primitive cognitive tools. So that's it. It's built into human language. It's modeled. If you have painful histories and so forth, you're asking for it because you wonder why. Why do I feel like this? And it may be because mom was really critical. You have been emotionally abandoned. You were actually physically abused. You know, that those teenage boys down the road who pulled you in the backyard and pulled your pants down and la laughed at you and maybe even did something. And you were three freaking years old. And you start looking at things like, how many people take sexual abuse? I just named it. Well, I was, that example I just used is in my history. I was three and a half before those teenage boys did that thing. Three and a half years old. It was zero defenses and then told me, we've got, we've got microphones in your house. If you tell your mama, we'll kill them. You know, so I'm, I'm going home trying not to tell my mother about how the, it wasn't just me, it was the three other little kids. They just made us feign sexual acts and laughed at us and stuff like that at age three and a half. You know, the little guy didn't have any defense against that. None. Well, but then in there, there's seeds in there that are, that can grow, you know, like uh, in that case, I always use that example with me, because I come by interest in psychological flexibility, quite honestly. It's modeled, but my dad's an alcoholic, my mom's OCD and depressed, and they're, they're fighting, et cetera. It's being modeled, being actually encouraged. I didn't find until about three years ago, I'm turning 73, 74 this year, that my mother's mother committed suicide and my, and my mother blamed her for it. I didn't know that until... My mother's mother's sister's son showed up through 23andMe living just 80 miles away. And I go and visit him, Les Millet. And he tells me the story about my grandmother. that She killed herself and 
They refused to do an autopsy because nobody wanted to be shamed in the family. And that she had, I knew that she had asked my mother to come and take care of her in the TV sanatorium, which she couldn't do. It would just mean visiting her, but it meant her abandoning her college to do it. And she said, no. And a week later, you know, grandma's dead. And so why was my mother washing her hands till she bled? Well, she had to live her life as I killed my mother. I mean, she lived her life inside that story. And my whole life makes a lot more sense now. Well, my point being, you look at these human beings around you and what they're faced. Plus, when you're faced with it, you do things that are logical, reasonable, sensible, and pathological to deal with your like the little guy's sense of shame. Something's wrong. You know, sure. your body's laughable. You know, and I'm only three and a half. So social support, it's built into language. You have painful experiences. And then the kicker. It actually works. It actually works. You know, avoidance and self-judgment pushes out some behavior that looks like it's healthy, like it's helpful. You put on a clown suit, you pretend. People do respond to that positively or you suppress and for a little while you feel better, quote unquote. You're doing a poorer job of feeling, but you don't see that. What you see is avoidance or these um, self-judgment and so forth drives, you know, like, how many people are high achievers because they're wagging self-judgment at themselves constantly? You know, and then you wonder why the CEO, you know, shot himself when he had everything. He had the trophy house, the trophy spouse, the trophy. Nobody's living inside a story and driving out achievement in an effort to run from what's inside. And who knows? I mean, I do think it's something. Would you still create? Would you still do? Would there still be you know, great artists and so forth without, when you read their stories, the horrible misery. You know, it's a good question. I I'm like to think that there's enough love in the world, kindness in the world, that we do pretty well, thank you very much, if we learn how to be loving and kind to ourselves. But, um, so entanglement with self-judgment. Now, one final little thing, it even seems to work. We get bad training. So it isn't just that, you know, it's tricky. The tools that we use to try to create psychological health do actually help externally and even sometimes internally in short term and sometimes in particular phases of your life, but they get way overgeneralized. So I started at that thing of, you know, you're not a math problem, yet, but you want to know how to solve math problems. You, that's a really good skill to have. You're not a car that's broken, but you want to know how to fix cars. That, that's, a, that's a good thing to know. It turns out because you're a historical being that the challenge of life is something more like looking at a sunset and saying, wow, or listening to a abused child and saying, wow, and hugging him, no, not, not to say anything else, not try to immediately fix him or criticize him for crying or tell God that the sunset should have a different shaped cloud. You know, so we do have the capacity to observe and describe and put a period on it, but we don't apply it very often. And it gets overwhelmed in the cacophony of problem solving. So the individual features, you know, there, but for the grace of God, uh, it would be you with that self-judgment. You put the same history. And some of that includes biological history. And some of the people trying to get there with, you know, personality and stuff like that. We know, for example, that it's a familial thing. Can you associate negative things over longer periods of time or with lower levels of probability? And you got the big three of you know substance abuse, depression, anxiety kicking out in family histories. But if you actually look at these underlying core genetic tendencies, some of them is that you're one of the, the good learners across longer periods of time of aversive events. And is that important to the troop? It's massively important to the troop. 
We need people like you. You need the watchful monkeys. You know, you need the ones that are not so sure about that new monkey coming into the troop or whatever the thing is. So, uh, but it'll turn on you if you decide that you'll avoid the, the pain of rejection by avoiding social contact or you'll dampen down your anxiety with enough alcohol or you'll, you know, give you, yeah, yeah, you know, back, back to flexibility, right? The, the idea yeah. that judgment itself isn't necessarily the problem. It's the, it's the misuse of it or getting stuck or overgeneralizing it. Or like, I, I, I was thinking of, you know, gears in a car, right? It, third gear isn't better or worse than first gear, right? It's, <laughs> they're just better or worse in different situations. And, and the inability to shift fluidly between them is what usually causes problems, right? Yeah, and I think we're trying to do some things in our culture. I mean, historically, our spiritual religious traditions were the ones that would rein in the excesses. And they all did it through practices that would do that, you know, whether it's meditation or prayer or chanting or silence or dancing or something, you know, of deliberately creating small amounts of uh, aversive events in the service of a larger good, you know, getting on your knees, stations of the cross, you know, don't eat things, don't eat meat on Friday. You know, I'm raised as a Catholic and then, you know, all these rules about how to deliberately create aversive events. My mother would say, offer it up, dear, offer it up. Meaning this connects you in, in consciousness of the suffering of others, you know, so don't be telling me it hurts to be on your knees. It hurts on purpose. And or fasting or whatever the thing was. A lot of that has gone away in the culture. We've gotten a lot more into kumbaya period, end of story, and that I'm not sure that's good. Not in every spiritual group, but we are putting things in the schools like silent time. And, you know, we probably don't call it meditation, at least not in the South, but it's, it's the basics of it or other things like that. So I don't know, as a culture, can we do better? Well, look around us. And I think you see people yearning for that. And uh, certainly in this couple of years of COVID, there's been a huge expansion, the number of people who are trying to adopt wisdom practices that will help them sit with distress and the ambiguity of how it's all going to go and loneliness and all you know i mean there's been an explosion of concern with mental health issues because we're all now into a thing where we know it's not mental illness but it's not what we're talking about these psychological challenges are universal sure. well that's fat i mean that's that's really fascinating that idea that historically we've had whether it's through culture or religion or, or whatnot we've had these sort of practices that that kind of nudge us or force us into um experiencing suffering instead of running away from it which is only, it's kind of little non-clinical bits of exposure, right? <laughs> um, and that we've kind of, we've lost that to a large extent. And now we're kind of struggling to, how, how do we get that back somehow, right? How do we build that back into the system? I mean, isn't that a fact? You know, and, and I've actually been tempted to talk about this in ways that actively encourage people to do this. But then I think, oh man, Steve, I don't know if I'm ready to take that step. I do myself do that. I always have something that's hard to live to. That's a challenge, you know, just things that, and often that are productive, but I like the ones that are not productive. I like the ones that have no reason other than just cause. So for example, early on in the act journey, you know, as I'm beginning to learn to walk out, out of uh, panic disorder and so forth, uh, I would try to extend commitments around aversive decisions that were just cause. They made no sense. There was no reason to do them. And uh, it was especially great if there was no reason. So, and the, I remember the graduation one was, I'm going to go a year without eating any ice cream. Why? No reason. Well, why would you do that? No reason. You know, you absolutely refuse to give a reason. As soon as you give a reason, it's linked to some sort of self-manipulation, some sort of problem solving thing. No, it's just, just cuts. And uh, I actually put a, without thinking, put a spoonful in my mouth and spit it out. That's as close as I came. But I went a whole year to violating it, which I don't know if it's a violation or not. But other than that, I went a year. 
So I've always got something like that, that I, not always, but often to play with. And it's my own version of, you know, people used to wear hair cloth. They wear wore clothes that are deliberately itchy. Why would you do that? And you can see people in the Islamic world and so forth who still to this day, you know, will flagellate and things like that. And you think, oh my God, you know, that person's a, you know, almost you should like put them in jail, you know, like we can't even allow this. But come on, this is, I mean, Ben Franklin was doing uh, self-control exercises like that and putting it in his little diaries. And, you know, you get into something like you're going to manage your diet, sleep or exercise, and you're going to do it deliberately. It's going to be aversive. <laughs> what do you think? So, but I have not actually written even a single blog on this, really. Maybe one, but because it sounds so close to something that I almost keep it secret. But of course, we should be doing that. Why wouldn't we? We do it in treatment. I mean, we're doing exposure, let's say. But it'll be graded. It'll start small. You don't want to throw people in the deep end of the pool. You could, but you wouldn't. probably shouldn't. But in kind, you know, one step at a time. Why couldn't we be doing that all the time, working on our stress tolerance skills? If you want to predict if somebody going to quit smoking, I can predict it in less than a minute. Hold your breath. Breathe when you can't stand it anymore. Ready? Go. It predicts whether or not you can commit smoking, quit smoking. In Get Out of Your Mind in Real Life, the first self-help book on act, I have an exercise like that. I say, sit on a couch. If you faint and fall over, I don't want to have you get sued. You know, be careful because you, know, you can hold your breath so long that you actually pass out and so forth. And we did randomized trials of the impact of this on anxiety, depression, and all substance use, all that kind of stuff. And then people in the book would have to write down how many seconds they could hold their breath. And then we teach them basic acceptance and diffusion skills. And just a chapter later or something, you do it again. And it goes up. It always goes up. Well, the number of seconds it goes up predicts the follow-up outcomes of reading Get Out of Your Mind and End Your Life. It mediates the outcome. You can do it in less than a minute. So I don't know if it's really psychologically healthy to be a, you know, a, a, a breath diver. There's a whole sport there of these people who can hold their breath the longest. Um, but I suppose it's the... It it's the the new more flexible rule that gets generated as a result of those experiences right it's 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 counteracting the idea that because it feels bad something's wrong or or i'm wrong for feeling that way and and on the other hand when you build up enough of these experiences it, it teaches you the opposite that just because it feels bad doesn't mean it is bad or, or that i'm bad for feeling that way right no exactly and that turns out to be a generalizable skill you wouldn't think it could go from what it feels like to have your lungs bursting to things like whether or not you're willing to go to a party if you're socially anxious and you're walking out of that. But it does. That's why it mediates. It actually is a skill that generalizes. And it's a complex set of skills. And it's, you know, and it turns out you can do it in ways that are not predictive. I'll give you an example. We've tried to use some of these methods, you know, ACT is going deeply into athletics and, and sports and literally people winning gold medals with ACT coaches and all that kind of stuff. I know some of them, I watched it. I even went to spring training right before COVID. It's the entire team of mental performance coaches at the Toronto Blue Jays were all act all the time. They, that, that, that was great. That was really wonderful. So my dad was a pro ball player and stuff. So I hope he was looking down and smiling. I was awful at it. I, my battery average was approximately zero, but I was at spring training. And I said, but my, my point being, when you actually ask professional athletes, for example, things about psychological flexibility, and you get over into this emotional openness. And one feature of that is not all of it uh, because it involves deepening emotional experience, being able to really sense its qualities. But part of it is just being open to aversive events. 
And they're massively good at it. Professional athletes are unbelievably good at it. And it doesn't predict psychological health very well because they've learned in athletics to just do or die. I mean, they'll get out there on the football field with a bone sticking out of their leg if that's the coach grabs them and says, no, you're not going back out there. And so uh, it's there's some subtleties involved, but I, I think it is amazing how much we've tried to create a feel-good culture that we're going to define a happy and joyful life as one that doesn't contain pain when we know that's a lie because at least the vulnerability to pain is built in. I mean, if, if you say I love you to somebody and you mean it without qualification, boy, are you vulnerable. What if that person's lying to you? What if they can't be trusted? What if they're bonking your best friend in the back room and you don't even know it? What if they're going to find you ugly later on? What if they don't want to be with you anymore? What if they die? You know, you better not. You better not. Okay, well, that's your mind saying. Uh, because you want it so badly, you can never have it because it would hurt them to lose it. And if you're not willing to lose it, you've already lost it. If you're not open to that vulnerability, love is not possible. And so it's just an example of how crazy our minds will work once we're just doing problem solving. And I think through the wisdom traditions and the practices that used to be there would be a healthy thing. We probably can't do it inside traditional religion again, the rise of the nuns and all the rest. I mean, organized religion is weakening so much. We're going to have to do it in a different way. But we dare not get to this thing where it's, you know, rim and stimpy, happy, happy, joy, joy. And that's the definition of a, you know, a smiley face button is the definition of happiness, really? No, it isn't. Yeah. Well, well, speaking of those kind of wisdom traditions and, and, and even therapeutically, how do we kind of achieve these goals? You, in the book, you've got this great, it, it's, it's probably the most concise and actually best history of psychotherapy I've ever come across. You've got this section where you sort of summarize the evolution of psychotherapy from, you know, Freud and psychoanalysis up through Rogers and then into, into kind of the first wave of behavior therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy. And then, and then into sort of what's, what's called third wave psychotherapy, right? Which is characterized very much, but I mean, ACT is sort of the, the, the bearer, I think, of the flag of third wave therapy in a lot of ways. Um, can you, it, it, now when I, and as someone who's very third wavy myself, I mean, I was trained kind of in a more traditional cognitive behavioral context, but have become much more third wavy. Um, let's think kind of historically about the evolution of psychotherapy. It, it can feel a lot like this has got to be kind of the end of history when it comes to like, we've kind of arrived, right? Like the third wave approach, the kind of relational approach over kind of content, um, integrating sort of behavioral and cognitive approaches. Like it, it can sort of feel like we're at the peak, right? Um, so how do you, how do you think about that? Yeah. Like is, is third wave the final wave? And if not, no, no it's not. And in fact, I'm pushing really hard, you know, towards process-based therapy, that book that's over my shoulder, which is to be able to say, okay, let's look at all of the processes meaning the sequence of things that you do that reliably move you toward what you really want, both ameliorating problems and promoting prosperity. And when you do that in a way that's really open, you look at everything that's out there. We just finished, it's under review, a meta-analysis where we've looked at every single study ever done in the history of the universe that was a randomized trial with a psychotherapy intervention or a psychosocial intervention of some kinds, we didn't do medications, with a psychosocial outcome of some kind with a treatment as usual control group, every study that's ever been done that claim to say, we know what the mediator is, what the functioning process of change is. So that was looking at 55,663 studies, which took three years. We had, yeah, it was 50, 50 students working for three years, scoring each of them twice. We ended up with about 700 findings that really were legitimate. 
And if we look at the ones that were replicated, so they, you, because a lot, often people would put these things together, like, you know, this item from here and this item from there. And I'm thinking, you Pete, you P hacked that. You did that later. Come on. You didn't go. You were just trying to find something that worked. So you looked at just the ones that replicated and it was 73 measures that replicate and 281 studies. And so it's under review right now, behavior research and therapy. And I can tell you some really cool things, like almost 50% of everything that we know about positive change is psychological flexibility and mindfulness. The biggest dog in the pen is psychological flexibility, even though we're a small wing of evidence-based therapy. But if you start digging down, there's other things in there, some that I can easily put in there, like self-compassion. Self-compassion to me is really close to self-acceptance, self-kindness, et cetera. It's almost the same thing. Correlates 0.75, et cetera, et cetera. But you want to be respectful. You know, if Kristen Neff, you want to call it psychological flexibility. Okay, fine, it's fine. You start clicking through there and you've got some things in there like self-efficacy. Yeah, self-efficacy is pretty good. It works pretty well. And But it's that deal of I could do it. It's pretty close to committed action. You know, I am going to do this a whole year without ice cream. I can do it for no damn good reason. Just because I said so. They like kind of self-efficacy. I mean, you keep walking through it, walking through it, walking through it. And here's the, my message. You'll find pieces in there that come from not just third wave, but second wave, first wave, and humanistic and relational and, you know, other traditions. Oh, well. Pick one, Therapeutic Alliance. It's only in there five times, mind you, out of five, 281 findings. So we've got some people saying, it's only the Therapeutic Alliance. No, that's not right. And actually your amount of data is mostly correlational. It's not really looking at a functionally important pathway of change, but fine, Bruce and the rest. Um, if you don't if know who I'm talking about, these are folks who are in the common core process world claiming it's all, it's all relationship. But it's in there. And, and so here's my point. Well, here's now. Uh, we mentioned earlier the parenting that you've had and how you are a parent with others, you know, depending on the measures, you know, because this is any possible. Uh, or another one, social support, having friends who uh, care about you and who, you know, foster positive things with you. And it's not just social support, but what they support you for. Okay, so when you finish it, you end up saying, okay, wait a minute psychologists, you sometimes forget the social extension. You better put compassion in their relationships, in their uh, social support, therapeutic alliance. That's important. Diet, sleep, and exercise shows up on this list. So, okay, for second, third waivers, it ain't just psychology. It's your underlying biophysiology. There's even some mediators of things like gray matter, you know, and uh, if we were to do it, we had to stop at 2018 because it took so long to do this study. And I know there's some decent ones now with brain circuits and things like that. That's got to be in there. But uh, I think the next step will be, you kind of were asking that question, two big things. And one I animated earlier. Uh, I think we now need to say, it isn't just your relationship to content. Yes, content matters. But it isn't just psychology. It's also the social cultural level. But it isn't just that, it's also the biophysiological level. And all of these complex uh, clinical traditions have some elements of truth in them. So if you really want to be effective, ACT people, DBT people, psychotherapy people, you better think of your model in a way that's permeable enough that you can bring in the elements of processes or change that are relevant for this individual. And there's that second shoe to fall, which is... We have to stop treating people as error terms. When you go to processes of change, it turns out you cannot look at those 
only in group designs. You have to look at those ideographically and then generalize it to the group, but only if that keeps helping you dial into the needs of the individual. The future is personalized. It's just like personalized medicine. Medicine's walking through the same change for the same reason. You know, I tell the story, he gives me permission. My, my brother's got a prostate cancer right now that he's fighting and he's a physician, old now, retired, but you know, he ran to the Mayo Clinic and to the UCSF where he could get the highly specific tests that are only there. They can say exactly how his tumor is growing and, and what's responsive to, because he doesn't want a one size fits all. Here's how to kill all the female hormones in your body or rather male hormones in your body. You know, that's fine. That's a place to start. But there's a whole lot more things that are edgier. Same thing true psychologically. Psychotherapy needs to be individually focused, process focused. And once you get there, all processes should have a chance to play if they apply to the individual in front of you. You shouldn't be in here saying, you know, like I only do act and only the stuff that's in the 1999 book. I wrote that freaking book and it's a crime to do that. Please don't do that. You know, because that's not what that was about ever. It was about progress, not about planting a flag in the ground and saying this is the you know god's gift to psychotherapy that, that's interesting because this kind of personal personalization idea in some ways it what it makes me think is it's it's becoming more and more a matching problem right we're becoming more aware of the basic processes that are helpful the question now is for a given unique person which set of processes is going to be most optimal for them right so let's i want to ask real quick about the uh, kind of a different side of the matching problem which is if someone someone out there is looking for a therapist right for a mental health professional. In, in, in your opinion, what's, what's sort of an important, but, but maybe a non-obvious factor people who are looking for a, a therapist or mental health professional should be thinking more about? Well, I would really like to look for one that is evidence-based, but process-focused, who is not a one-size-fits-all, you know, my school, my way, my tradition, my protocol, and who in the very first call has the feel of enough flexibility and humility to be able to really focus on me and uh, not so much on what they know and their great grandness that they will put on me. And uh, if you can get a real human being where they're focused on you, but they have knowledge, but especially look for that kind of knowledge that allows them to be flexible, playful, to learn, to be cutting edge, to be looking at what's going on. And I would add, a read for that is that they're interested in processes of change. They're not just interested in protocols and labels. And, you know, I'm a DBT therapist. I'm an ACT therapist. I'm a CBT person. Why? You know, what is that? You know, you know, I'm a surgeon. Okay. You know, but that's not a particular brand or something. You know, I only do, you know, use these tools or something. That's so weird. It'd be like going to somebody to build a house and they say, I'm a Stanley guy. I only use Stanley tools to say, great. But unfortunately they don't have any drills. So we're gonna we're gonna have to use you know wood bits you know in order to but it'll cost twice as much and it won't be as sturdy but you'll have the best Stanley house out there you know I'm walking in the other direction and saying I don't know who's interested in your houses but I am not you know I came I want a house that's strong cheap effective beautiful I'm on all those features you know and uh, the tools you use to be whatever accomplishes that now it turns out I will say this to my act friends I'm not saying I'm not taking act away because one thing that's cool about act it never bought into the syndromes. It was never about protocols. It was always about processes. And it turns out the psychological flexibility model, yes, needs to be socially expanded. 
Yes, don't forget physical health, biophysiological processes. Turns out we have a lot to say about that, so that's all good. And expand a little bit so that you know cognitive flexibility is not just diffusion. It's also being able to think in a cognitively flexible way, being able to generate lots of different ideas and pick the ones that are useful. That does not mean classic reappraisal. Don't think this, think that. That's bull. That's wrong. That's disproven. That's false, I think, empirically, even to my CBT colleagues. But cognitive flexibility, in addition to thinking this, you could think that. And you think that and that and that. It's even in the early ACT protocols, but it wasn't built out enough. And I don't mind if you call that reappraisal. That's great. But mean by that, cognitive flexibility, being able to step back, notice your thinking, but also be able to think broadly and flexibly, and then take what's useful and leave the rest. It's a little amplification. And so I'm out there trying to amplify ACT to fit a process-based focus based on everything we know about processes of change, which I now know because I've done the research. And we'll learn more things. I don't mean everything we know, period. I mean, everything we know as of 2018. So, but the other suit of fall, that, uh, that ideographic thing, can I tell that story just a little bit, but it takes me away from your, your question about another therapist. Here's, this will turn into a rant, so rein me in, Nick. You just gotta rein me in. But I'm chasing processes of change, right? And then I realize, wait a minute, we use group averages, even in things like mediational analysis. I just told you that three years, an enormous effort to do everything known with mediation. With If the people don't know that and they're just listening, it's a particular statistical way inside randomized trials that you can use to determine functionally important pathway of change. The problem, processes are ideographic. They're not nomothetic. Groups don't have processes uh, in the way that we mean it. Collections don't. Uh, the metaphor I use would be like you stood in front of a building, you have to get to the back. And I, I say, see that door in front of you, that glass door behind it? There's a little vestibule and then there's another glass door. Go in there and see what the options are. You go in, the, the second glass door is locked, but there's a stairway to the roof, to the to a doorway that takes you up the stairways and you can go down the fire escape. There's a stairway down to the basement, you go through the basement and out the back. Or you could leave the vestibule and go out the alleyway, alleyway on the right and the alleyway on the left. So there's four possible ways up, down, left and right. That's it. You can't go straight ahead, the door is locked. Now you run the statistical analysis, you average it all, and it says run through the locked door. Not a single person run through, ran through the locked door. Nobody did it. That's how group averages work. And now we've started chasing that. We started looking at our data. And I go, oh my goodness. We've got things like the scientifically valid finding is X. And no one did that. In big randomized trials, no one. It applies to no one. Think about the poor clinician. Okay, so what's the solution? We have a solution. High density longitudinal measurement model within the person using variability within their life, what relates double-headed arrows, complex networks. When I do this, I do this. When I do that, I do that. And sure enough, when I do that, I do this again. And now I'm on a loop where I'm self-amplifying. You know, when I get nervous about the party, I hammer down some alcohol that makes me more emotionally labeled. I may embarrass myself. And then I don't go to, now I'm nervous about going to parties, but next time I'm even more nervous, so I'm more likely to drink alcohol, blah, 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 whatever. <clears throat> then statistically, you can look to see, is that like anyone else? In other words, no pathetic, but only if they help you dial in, you know, like, Nick, your face has more blotches on it. And by the way, I've got age spots. You know, you want your stats to help you see the person, not to blur the person into an error term or an average. Okay, here's the rant. There's not even a word for that. We made it up called adenomic. The word normal entered into the English language in the Civil War. It was barely in the English language before it. 
the classical stats we use came out of Galton and Pearson and Fisher and Frank Yates. Standard deviations, where you are, you can predict what's going forward. And all of those people were eugenicists. All of them. They created, Galton was a grandson of Erasmus Darwin, just like Charles Darwin. He reads Charles Darwin 10 years later, writes his first big book called Hereditary Genius, in which he says, the reason we have health problems, et cetera, is that the upper classes aren't breeding and the lower classes are. And if you see them on standard deviations, you know, only the tips should breed. The other ones down here should be sterilized. Every state in the union had laws that would allow people to ster be sterilized on the basis of criminality, IQ, personality disorders, and mental illness every state in the US of A, you can't have babies. You know, and so here's the deal, gang. 150 years later, we're living inside a conceptual scheme that we're proud of. My son is in gifted and talented based on where they are on that between person. And the final bit of this rant is the, phys the statistical physics discovered Almost 100 years ago, it was proven that you can't go from the collective to predicting the individual over time. They were looking at gas molecules and the volume of gas versus the behavior of gas molecules. And that's exactly what we've been trying to do in psychology and behavioral science. And your place on a standard deviation doesn't predict what's going to go forward over time. Those processes of change depend on the idiographic combination of forces. So if you want to know how your life is going to play out and you buy into Darwin's eugenic dreams with yourself, your kids, the rest, you're not getting more effective, but you're definitely busy categorizing people instead of empowering people. And therapists do it when they do their DSM dance. Educators do it when they do their IQ and placement dances. You know, um, workplaces do it when they say, you know, who's able or not to be a good worker and on and on it goes. We have, we're living inside a racist, classist way of thinking that's 150 years old and we don't know it. And uh, it'll never work because it's statistically impossible. So my joyful story to you is that uh, about 98% of psychology is wrong, irretrievably wrong. It's funny. It makes me, I was sort of asking the question earlier of what's the, what's the fourth wave of behavioral therapy. And the answer I'm almost starting to hear is what we should be asking is what's the second wave of humanistic therapy, which is really looking at people as human beings and as individuals and that, that being our broader framework. Isn't that neat? You know, Maslow, I was a Maslow person before I was a Skinnerian. I was a Maslow person in high school, became a Skinnerian in the first year of college. And it was Walton too that made me a Skinnerian because the idea was how could we prosperity and so forth with these principles. But the humanists had the wrong answer, but the right problem. You know, Maslow, scientist, Carl Rogers, scientist, but saying, you know, but we need a different kind of science. It can't just be this quantitative thing that we're doing. And they were, you know, more right than wrong. It is a different kind of science we need, but no, it needs to be quantitative, but it needs to be quantitative in this highly ideographic way, way beyond the time series designs. I mean, I've written a book on that, the, the behavior analysts used and stuff, but there's other traditions in developmental or neuropsych, there's other ones that have been very ideographic, but it needs to be more like a complex network. And, and now we have the tools, we can actually do these. And I, spending a lot of my time figuring out how to get those tools in the hand of clinicians, how to you know, understand these statistical tools and put them out there. I don't think we're very far away from a DSM killer app that will allow clinicians, for example, to do, we're calling idiomic, ideographic, then nomothetic, but only if it helps you see the person, idiomic analyses of people. And 
uh, it's hugely different than first, second, third wave because it's kind of a, a now for something completely different reset button that is resonant with these waves. It's in our best psychological traditions, but boy, is it different. And uh, we'll see. I mean, people may just think myself, Stefan Hoffman, Joe Sorochi, others who work on this are nuts, but they're going to have to look at the data. We're starting to look at these, the, you know, the theorem, by the way, that proved this was called the ergodic theorem, uh, the physics theorem. And you can measure ergodicity. You can measure whether or not your assumptions are violated. Turns out they're in classical stats. The classical statisticians didn't realize it, but it's a core assumption of t-tests and all the rest is ergodicity. And, you know, we're on a journey right now where the scientists are going to have to either figure out why what we're saying is wrong or that reset button needs to be pushed because um, every voice matters and people are not error terms. I'll give you, an, can I give you an example just this morning? Just this morning, Joseph Rotary sent me this thing on self-compassion and self-kindness versus compassion for others and kindness for others, okay? And a, a guy who's sort of in my world, Andy Gloucester, who's the president-elect of the Association for Contextual Behavioral Science, you know, the kind of acty wing, uh, guy there in uh, Switzerland, really, really wonderful guy, has some high-density longitudinal data that contain these measures. And so we just did the statistical analysis and plopped up the graphic. And what you see is a positive correlation. People who are kinder and more, and more accepting are self-compassionate with themselves are kinder and more compassionate for others, except not everybody. There's about a quarter of the folks where the kinder they are to others, the harsher they are to themselves. About a quarter of them. And you put them into a group and you say, these are positive. But if you're a clinician or something, you're trying to teach compassion, you know? And then what you find is more self-judgment. It's a one out of four, one out of five gamble. And you're either going to think, these people, oh, how did this happen? Or you won't. You'll try to force it on people. You just need to, you need to work on your compassion even more. We know that's true. There's a hundred studies showing it. No, there's a hundred studies lying to you. They're, it's true for most people. It's factually false for a lot of people. That's true of self, you know, acceptance. Some of my babies be more emotionally open. Not if you're a first responder at work. First responders at work who are more emotionally open are going to have problems, but they need to go home and be emotionally open or they're going to hammer down martinis and slap their spouse. You know, so there's not a single process you can name that's positive or negative. Not one. They're positive or negative in context for individuals, sometimes depending on how it all fits together. So we've got this new statistical means and we're looking at it and we're seeing things like, oh my God, these flexibility processes for a small minority, but a significant minority play negatively in context of the whole network. Like focus on what's important and do what works. And then you find a workaholic that the more they do that, the less they're satisfied in life. Because over here, they've got this little item, finding places to express your emotions and it's not being attended to it makes sense it's not like everything we've done or all these years that makes sense so yeah my i love the way you've summarized it. it won't just be the humanists who are feeling good about it though i think the analysts will i think the systems people will but i think the the first waivers the second waivers and the third waivers will too because they're all in there we're all in it together yeah <laughs> it's just everybody was wrong and everybody was right now let's can we get better
Well, and that's, I mean, it, it, that's what it means to be a, a real scientist, right? Is, is to be able to look at when you're wrong and, and take that and move forward. Yeah, exactly. And it turns out our analytic methods have been fighting us. Our categorical concepts have been fighting us. Our model for science has been fighting us. And so we've got some hard things to learn, some really new things to learn. The joyful thing that I can say is that uh, change is coming. And why I could say to you, find a person who's process interested, process focused, who's actually staying up in the literature and reading, who knows something new about, yeah, mindfulness, psychological flexibility, thing, compassion, things that kind, but not somebody who's thumping the, the book, whatever holy book they got that they're thumping. No. Yeah. So refreshing to hear. Steve, I, I so appreciate this conversation. It's been awesome. I've, I mean, I think I only got through about 10% of my questions that I wanted to ask you for, but, but that's good. That just means I can have you back on nine more times, right? <laughs> um, some great questions. Such fun. I'm sorry for my rants, you know? I, no, that's, that's the whole reason I have podcasts is so you can have interesting rants with, uh, with interesting folks. I think that's, uh, that's, that's so much of the game. But yeah, I, I, again, I very much appreciate you making the time to come on. I know you're a super busy guy. Um, and so I, I very much appreciate it. Where, where can people go if they want to learn more about you and, and all your incredible work? Yeah, a really easy way is just to get on my newsletter list. I don't spam people. It's one click opt out. It's easy. But you just go to www.steven C Hayes, Stephen with the V, middle initial C, uh, dot com, Stephen C Hayes.com, and I'll put you on that list. And yeah, I will tell you, you know, I'm doing this workshop, I'm doing this thing, but I'll also just send out a every, every two weeks to four weeks a, a blog and a little video thing and just doing my little Steve rants and stuff. And if you ever don't like it, just click on the button on the bottom. I don't hide the little button on the bottom. You can find it <laughs> on the subscribe. You're out. It's all good. And, um, you know, I'm here to try to be useful to people. And, and I do think uh, that, well, that kind of me to say this. I'm proud of the fact that the tradition I'm part of has been able to, uh, I think, penetrate lots of different areas. And a really cool thing about learning about processes of change is that if you learn some of the sets and you learn how to apply them in your life, if you're not a therapist, but you're, it turns out that healthy processes apply to a lot of things. And so um, if you learn it in one area, it might stumble a little bit. How does it apply to the other layer? It applies to the other area. And so life is not that complex that we can't get better. Back to my, what would you say to a six-year-old? Sure, sure. But you're always going to be uh, peeling back the onion and learning more and, uh, the smallest set that does the most that I know of is in the psychological flexibility and mindfulness area. So it's a great place to start. It's a great place to start. And it's a fantastic place to end is where we began, right? With psychological flexibility. Well, Steve yeah. Hayes, I, again, very much appreciate it. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Nick. Much appreciated.